Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International. And we are on Chapter 6, Part 4. The afternoon of the second day's travel, we had come to some very famous sharp curves of the Burma Road with unguarded precipitous drops at the edge. I do not know anything about driving, but as we whirled around those hairpin turns and gaily struck up big rocks lying on the rough road, I thought to myself, guess it's all right, but this looks to me like dangerous driving. I was just wondering about it when we struck another big stone, and there was a ripping and a pounding sound. The entrails of the engine seemed to fall out, bang, bang, bang. Something underneath was dragging and bouncing. The brakes were broken, and the wheels would not respond. The side of the road dropped off into a steep cliff. I heard John shouting, Jump, Bell, jump! But where to? Outside of the cab door was the edge of that cliff. I just sat still and cried in my heart. Lord, you promised. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. It's not Bashan yet. I was still quoting Genesis 28:15 when the driver somehow managed to turn the wheel towards the steep rock bank of the mountainside and away from the dangerous edge. Then Ava and I opened the cab door and got out. What a sight met our gaze. Soldiers were lying in the rough gravel road with heads gashed, open, bloody, and groaning. Dr. Roots and John and Colonel Hesse had jumped running, of course, but the poor common Chinese soldiers just off the farm and with no experience of trucks or modern machinery had jumped straight. The next few minutes were busy ones. Irate, Colonel Hesse was shouting orders to tie up the driver. Dr. Roots was kneeling beside the wounded with his first aid kit open. Build a fire and boil some water for sterilizing, he called to us. A fire? In the middle of the Burma Road? Unpractical me, I stood and gaped. It was little Ava who ran to the hillside to look for twigs, and it was she who got the fire going and boiled water in a surprisingly short time. I helped hold heads up while the gashes were bathed clean and the doctor bound them up. Straightening up to ease my back at one time, I looked over the edge of the cliff and gasped in astonishment to see about a hundred feet down the wreck of what was once had been a truck. I called John's attention to it. Hmm, he grunted. One has gone over here. Sure enough, it's a miracle we didn't go to. Incidentally, we had a good chance to preach Christ to those poor soldiers of our escort. Stranded on this lonely stretch of the Burma Road, six or seven miles from Wayo, the nearest village, we had nothing to eat and darkness was approaching. Colonel Hesse was still flying about, making one of the soldiers climb a telephone pole. Soon I saw an interesting sight, a field telephone set up. He called the military headquarters at Bashan and explained our predicament. All right, they answered. Tomorrow a truck will come and get you. So that night we slept in a broken truck on the road. The next day we got no further than Wayo, a little hamlet restaurant that catered to the trade of the Burma Road. This, by the way, was where the trail to Le Sulin comes out on the motor road. But Colonel Hesse wished to go to Bashan first, and so did we in order to buy our staple foods of flour and sugar and so on. And so the Lord fulfilled his promise and brought me again into that land. Will I ever forget that vision of Bashan, swept clean after the destruction? How deserted lies the city, once so full of people, were the only words that came. Now I understood why Jeremiah wept and how the lamentations flowed as he sat and beheld Jerusalem's desolations. The business section was laid flat as a plowed field. Silence reigned there, and grass was sprouting in the main street. But Dr. May's medical unit gave us a warm welcome, with opportunities to preach in the hospital and to the soldiers. 
Some of the Bashan Christians still in the city were hungry for fellowship. We learned that with the exception of one paralytic, not a Christian was killed in that awful bombing, although at least one of them was right on the main street at the time. Praying hard, she crawled under the culvert and was saved. Our hearts went out to those who were left, but God was taking care of them. Army personnel were constantly coming and going, so business was good. We were on our way to dinner with a Christian brother one afternoon when two soldiers sent by Colonel Hesse came to say that he had obtained horses for us to ride and to carry our goods, and we would leave tomorrow. And so began a long, slow trek into the Salween Canyon. If we'd been by ourselves, we would have made much better time, but Colonel Hesse was in charge, and we had to delay when he chose to. It was the rainy season, and often we were soaked to the skin, but we had good places to stay at night. We stopped a day at Six Treasures, where Colonel Hesse left us. This was the home of the three feudal Lairds, who entertained the colonel to more than food. I was invited out by the Laird's ladies, to whom I preached whenever I had the opportunity. That last afternoon, while I was away and Ava was alone, Colonel Hesse appeared and tried to take advantage of her, offering her a college education if she would go to him. Poor child. She darted past him, ran out to the veranda, where at least she could be heard if she screamed, and then faced him and told him what she thought of him. And Ava, aroused, did not mince words. You can imagine our feelings when we returned, and she told us. What a beginning for John, who was Colonel Hesse's advisor. Needless to say, behind our backs, the colonel turned to be our enemy. But God wonderfully protected us, for he was never allowed to do us any harm. And now I was to be home tomorrow. By nature, I disliked travel and change, and here I had been tossed from pillar to post for six weary months. I could hardly wait to get home to my quiet bedroom by the side of the deep ravine where the birds sang martins in the morning, and the great peaks glowed back the sunset hues with their steady unshakableness at day's end. I longed to get my roots down comfortably in familiar places, and this, my last little candle flame, had to be blown out. I had forgotten that the missionaries who had refugeed to our home from Bashan must necessarily have changed things. With five workers in a house where John and I had been the only two, and with three of them seriously ill, the furniture had to be changed around. Outside, home looked just as usual, but inside nothing seemed to be as I had left it. I felt like a stranger under my own roof. It seemed as if my last little candle flame of human love had been extinguished. The superintendency had taken my husband. No matter where we lived, he would be away from home much of the time. War had taken my little girl. Marriage had taken my lesu helper. And now home was no longer home. My roots could not sink down and be comfortable. This seemed to be the last straw that broke the camel's back. To my utter shame, my inner feelings were revealed to those dear guests, and I had to apologize and ask their forgiveness. They did forgive me. But I never forgave myself. The sun went down in clouds. The moon was darkened by a misty doubt. The stars of heaven were dimmed by earthly fears, and all my little candle flames burned out. But while I sat in shadow, wrapped in night, the face of Christ made all the darkness light. By Annie Johnson Flint. And now, least you think my dear master was too hard on me, I want to point out some things. The difficult lessons of 1942 taught me to fear leaning heavily on human props. I had surrendered my husband, child, friends, all I possessed, long ago. But this was something deeper. This was relinquishing my rights to them. This was holding them, but on the open palm of my hand. Alice McFarlane, principal of our language school in Yangchow, and a dear warrior saint, had taught me a metaphor. 
She said, keep your treasures in the open palm of your hand. If you hold something tight, clenched in your fist, God may have to hurt you in order to open your fingers and take it from you. But if it is offered on an open palm of your hand, you will hardly know when it is gone. I never found it so easy that it did not feel when my treasures were taken, but it did make a tremendous difference. It prevented me from collapsing or sprawling. Hannah Hernard in Hind's Feet on High Places expresses this truth in a different way. Little much afraid, says her beautiful allegory, long to go with the shepherd to the high places. She goes through many trials to get there, and the final and greatest is a descent into the steep canyon called the grave. In this deep valley there was an altar and a priest, and here she was asked to let the priest reach into her heart and pull out the plant called natural affection. Root and branch. When I read that, I nodded my head with delighted recognition. That was what happened to me in 1942, when all my little candle flames burned out. It does not mean that after such an experience, all affection is gone. Just the very opposite is true. But affection in its natural state is dealt with. Affection, especially with intense natures, as it comes to us from Adam, runs to excess if given free reign. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires, said Paul in Galatians 5.24. Uncrucified love runs to inordinate affection and selfish possessiveness, which blights rather than blesses. Little Much Afraid gave up the plant of natural affection, but she had already received the plant of the Lord's love in her heart. When we allowed the Lord to nail our affections to the cross, to use a scriptural metaphor, We do not cease to love. We love even more widely, but it is a love stripped of corrupting influences. Love is not killed. Only the seed of corruption in natural affection is killed. To go back to the practical illustration, when the little candle flames of human joy were allowed to burn out, it hurt. So when God gave me a new one, presented Ava to me, I was immediately on my guard. Natural affection would have prompted me so to embrace her that we would become all in all to one another. Crucified affection caused me to love her, but always be alert that it might never become inordinate affection. Always I reminded myself, the time will come that I must do without her. How should we live so that when the time comes, we can each separate without being undone? That is, never to let the other one become indispensable, so that when the human prop is removed, there is a painful sprawl. Never let home become so indispensable that at his call I cannot give it up. This brought me into the realm of unexpected freedom and relaxation. Human loves do not cease to delight, but they no longer enslave. Now, I do not want to profess that from the year 1942 on, I never again defaulted in this matter of enslaving affections. I defaulted often enough to keep me humble and totally cast upon the Lord. I cannot even sustain the lesson I learned without his help. My own strength is entirely untrustworthy. But through the experiences of 1942, I received a wholesome fear of what disobedience would do to me. And that fear helped to keep me looking to him. Crucified affections lift you into the realm of childlike simplicity and relaxation. Unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.3 The little child takes each day as it comes. He does not waste time imagining tomorrow's woes. He lives a day at a time. 
If today has tears, they are shed and spent, but they are not carried over in tomorrow. In the days that were ahead of me, I would again have partings and separations from loved ones that caused heart agony for many hours, but never again did they overwhelm me. In other words, all the suffering when my little candle flames went out, one after the other, were worth the tears they cost, for they purchased me a permanent freedom from sprawling spiritually, from being knocked down and overwhelmed. But while I sat in shadow, wrapped in night, the face of Christ made all the darkness light. As I look back on 1942, the disappointments and heartaches are a dark blur. That which stands out with the unfailing faithfulness of my Lord. When I was kicking against the pricks, he was never impatient, never withdrew his love. Every time I cried to him to fulfill the promises of Genesis 28:15, he responded immediately. The power of his resurrection. That is what stands out most sharply. And the dearness of himself that I may know him. And now see what he has lovingly planning to give me as soon as my job experience had borne fruit. He did not even wait for the fruition, and he gave me Ava as a foretaste. A wonderful reception back to Le Soulin from our dear spiritual children. I could not even imagine that in a year's time a little baby son with red gold hair and snow white skin would be cuddling in my arms. It was beyond thought that our home should be moved from Oak Flat and that I would be put right down beside Lucius and Mary in the village of Olives. And yet that is what happened. And there I had not only Lucius and Mary, but Ava and Danny as well. These plans of my dear Lord were all piled up waiting for me, just around the corner of the future. And he who is so lovingly dear to me will be the same to you. Next time it will be chapter 7, Small Harassments. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.